0: Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of the Glasshouse, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glasshouse is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website. I want to start by acknowledging that we broadcast at Triple R on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wandri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge this country's first peoples as the first storytellers of this land and acknowledge that context in which I continue to share stories through this show. I pay respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people tuning in today. It always was and it always will be. Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by poet, playwright and author out of Sydney, one of the co-directors of the National Young Writers Festival. It is Mike Kennedy to chat all about... NYWF. If you don't know it, it is an annual festival, usually takes place in Newcastle, but as is the way of the pandemic, the festival is going to take place entirely online this year. So we're going to be chatting all about the festival and planning and programming uh, in a digital world. And later on, I'll be sharing a story about memory, mythology, and language from all the best. The National Young Writers' Festival is a staple event in this country's literary landscape. It's an annual gathering of young writers, a place to show work, share ideas... And learn. The program is free and it's made by and for young writers who create across stage, page, web and beyond. And in 2021, they're going to be returning with another digital program. Joining me to speak about the festival and their upcoming program is poet, playwright and author and co-director, Mike Kennedy. Mike, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely
2: to be here.
0: It's uh, it's a pleasure to chat to you. I mean, for those that know National Young Writers Festival or NYWF, um, you know, it is such a staple in the kind of literary landscape. As a co-director, for you, what sets NYWF apart from other literary festivals in the country?
1: Um, well, obviously I'm biased, uh, <laughs> so I'll say that from the outset, but Um, I've always had a real deep fondness for the National Young Writers Festival because I think that um, more so than a lot of other kind of literary institutions, there is a real sense of um, community that is developed by and around the National Young Writers Festival. I feel like um, people go to the Writers Festival to learn because there are lots of events that are about sort of skill sharing and, you know, and craft and things like that but it also fosters a real sense of community among young writers like and allows them to forge connections and we find that we have loads of people coming back every year that speak very highly of the atmosphere that's created Mm. and that's something that we're very proud of Mm. um something that we're trying to carry across into the digital format you know which presents some challenges but uh we think we're doing okay
0: and It's not an easy task to kind of carry across, as you said, that real community feel, which Definitely as a participant of National Young Writers' Festival, I've very much felt in the past there's a lot of people in one space, you know, they're all kind of artists in their own right. It's very exciting. I am interested, I suppose, National Young Writers' Festival does have this rich history of celebrating writing across form. I think it's a real strength of the festival. Can you tell me a little bit about when you're thinking about programming the festival, what kinds of writing do you want to include?
1: Um, I think we take a very expansive approach, really. Um, uh, And it's always very exciting when we get applications in that uh, speak to different types of writing that maybe we hadn't previously considered. Um, I don't think there's necessarily a hugely prescriptive brief that we go into the room with when we're uh, doing the artist selection and planning uh, the events. That being said, though, we do try and keep track of um, all the different disciplines that people are writing from. Um, You know, like, I think if you were to take a fairly narrow reading of uh, what writing and writers' festivals should be that focuses mostly on literary prose and on poetry, um, you could end up with, like, quite an interesting, engaging festival, but it wouldn't necessarily be reflective of what the actual writing community is like. And, you know, as we experience, like, ever-increasing media convergence, like, it's pretty common now for people to write across lots of different disciplines in sort of new, exciting, engaging digital ways. And we kind of want to make sure that the festival is representative of the way people are writing in the present day. Mm. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know personally, I consume so much of what I read and write, yes, from books, but also from, uh, you know, digital platforms, from um, interactive uh, forms of communicating and writing. I think that, yeah, it totally makes sense to want to reflect that back into the program when that's the way that so many people kind of consume um, writing from writers in this country. You know, this is your second year of virtual programming given, the world right now I'm interested when you kind of look back to last year what do you think you learnt as as a team about about digital programming
1: we learnt that it is a lot of work <laughs> uh, uh, no we've, we we uh, had a real journey with it last year um, in a way that I would say was like overwhelmingly positive Um, early on, it was very scary as you know, across the entire art sector and the entire world. I know I'm sort of preaching to the converted here, but there was a very real sense that the festival might not go ahead. Um, and so we decided that we had better just bite the bullet and, uh, do our best to try and make an online program so that we could have some presence going forward. In some ways it's quite liberating because it makes the festival much more accessible to um, artists in regional communities and artists that otherwise may not have been able to afford uh, to get to Newcastle where it's normally held. We do try and offer some sort of travel bursaries and sponsorship to people, but uh, unfortunately we can't uh, get to everyone. But we did find last year that um, we had an increased participation of people from regional communities Um, and also, It's really useful um, in terms of making the festival more accessible to people that uh, might have various disabilities that would make engagement with the festival more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, people can watch it on their own time, which is really useful as well. Um, Obviously, there are some limitations. You know, it was harder, I think, um, to maintain that sense of, like, frenzy and excitement that you get from being in a room together. But, you know, it's just circumstantially impossible Um, but you know it was an exciting experience um, finding all of the different ways that we could utilize the digital format.
0: Mm. Yeah it's interesting I mean when I think of National Young Writers Festival I kind of think of the iconic uh Newcastle beachside and being in the venues that are very close together, you know, perhaps as you've said, it's becoming less about the place um, and more about the programming itself when you don't have those kind of pockets to connect in the same way. You kind of touched on this, but I'm interested in how you've gone about reaching out to people that perhaps haven't been able to access the festival before. I know you've said there's an increase in. Uh, engagement from writers in regional parts. How does that happen? What what has Nash Young Writers Festival done differently to, uh, I suppose, to try and open its doors and cast the net wider? Um, Well,
1: I should probably say that um, we are trying to invest a lot in expanding the reach of the festival to bring more regional artists in, but it is a process that we imagine is going to take some time. So one of the assets that we have this year is that our festival team is spread out over Australia much more than it has been in previous years. So um, I'm based in Sydney personally, as is our um, communications and marketing director, although he started off the year in Armidale. Um, And otherwise, our two other fantastic co-directors, Isabel and Lour, live in Adelaide. Um, Our creative producer, Mariana, lives in Newcastle. And then um, our directors, uh, oh, sorry, our co-managers, Hanin, uh, lives in Darwin and Siasha lives in Perth. Um, and our digital manager, who's just come on, Natalie's also in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we're much more spread out now means that we have more people sort of invested in, like, state-based arts communities, and that has really helped in terms of reaching people outside of Sydney and Melbourne, you know, mm-hmm. because... Like any arts organization, we do find that we have a sort of concentration of the southeast coast um, and we're trying to move away from that. Mm. Um, but essentially, just reaching out through partner organizations, through local communities, trying to encourage people to apply, um, be proactive about contacting them and making sure they see that it's happening.
0: Mm. I think it's incredibly um, incredibly exciting and I, I hope that, as you said, it's something that it does take time and it's very exciting to see National Young Writers' Festival really take a big step in that direction. Mike, as you kind of mentioned before, it is no surprise to anyone um, listening that the arts have taken a real hit in the pandemic. I'm interested, do you see... Uh, this, I suppose, a shift in in what the role is of National Young Writers Festival, in, in what the role is within the literary landscape? What do you think um, the role is for National Young Writers Festival in supporting young writers at the moment?
1: Um, we definitely do see a shift uh, and it's like, I would say that it's still in the process of shifting, uh, more so than necessarily fixed. Um It's been a very difficult time and um, particularly communicating with artists over the last couple of weeks. um, It's become quite clear and quite evident that there's like a very high level of um, burnout and mental health trauma that has arisen. You know, it's a macabre discussion, but unavoidable, um, arisen as a result of the most recent developments um, in Australia. Um, In that sense, I feel as though the festival has this like historic goodwill for creating a sense of community, as I said, and of uh, being a place that can be quite like hopeful and connective. Mm. And I think that that's where we probably need to be investing our energy in the short term to try and make sure that artists still feel like they are connected to each other and connected to their work. It's pretty easy, I think, at the moment to feel a sense of hopelessness about uh, the direction that your work takes you in the creative arts, and whether or not there necessarily is uh value to be found in it in a kind of like financial or sustainable sense as a festival, I think we need to remind people that there is, and that um you know there's value in the community and value in the creative expression, and that we just need to make sure that we 're there for people and creating opportunities and reminding them why it's a privilege to be part of this community at all.
0: If you have just joined us, we are chatting with co-director of the National Young Writers Festival, Mike Kennedy. Mike, I think you are incredibly spot on there. I think that National Young Writers Festival is so important in uh, creating and maintaining that hope for young writers. I saw something that was floating around the internet in the last few days that um, said breaking news, arts is important. Um, And I just felt like that, it is always really important to be reminded of that, particularly when people's worlds have completely shifted. The arts are really struggling right now. Artists are really struggling right now. It, you know, it is a hard position to be in for a young artist. So, I very much thank you for all the work that Nash Young Writers Festival is doing in kind of maintaining these this hope and and really putting out opportunities for young writers and artists. In saying that, if we're looking towards the festival for this year, what's gone into, I suppose, some more of the thinking around the programming and um, and the artists that will be involved.
1: Well, the theme of this year's festival, um, somewhat ironically, is uh, mobilise. It was made pre-lockdown, but it's still relevant in its own way. Um, We uh, wanted to program something that was optimistic and fun and playful and joyous because, um, as you well know, we have been surrounded by a lot of bad news for a long time. Um, and so early on, we had this kind of uh, dual aspiration that it would be kind of fun and playful in the kind of uh, way of like Jane Fonda doing jazzercise mobilisation <laughs> and also in the um, like political stirring sense as well of like collectivization and mobilisation for the common good. Um, both of those elements, we like to think, are definitely still in the programme. Um, and increasingly mobilization is something that is on everyone's minds, both in terms of like addressing a lot of, uh, you know, inequality in the way that the pandemic is being handled. And also, uh, because lockdown forces us to comprehend our relationship with the concept of movement and, um, like, you know, freedom to roam and to congregate and things like that. Um, As for the actual events themselves, we're launching the festival next Tuesday, so we're being a little bit tight-lipped about uh, what it involves and who it is. But we do have some things that we're really excited about, and I can probably speak to a few of them. Um, So uh, we've got a bunch of workshops that we're really excited for, Um, some of them sort of skills and craft-based, some of them are very – Specific knowledge like one of them is a workshop on the fundamentals of audio description for different types of art forms to be accessible to blind and visually impaired audiences. And then we also have a really fun event that's a kind of combination of a reading and panel about the history of agony arts mm-hmm. um, called the Festival of Bad Advice. Um, we've got a series of uh, lectures and roundtables about the uh, anti-colonial Asian history in the Asia Pacific and the relationship between um, Asian communities and the diaspora and uh, decolonial movements around the world. Um, We've got a few uh, events that are either directly or obliquely about uh, the experiences writers are facing at the moment, like uh, panel discussions on dealing with burnout and creating sustainable careers in the uh, arts industry. And then a couple of readings as well. Um, readings are a big staple of the National Young Writers' Festival. We do one every night. Um, and uh, two of our favourites, uh, we've got one called How to Make a Molotov Cocktail, which is a reading of protest literature written by a group of artists. Mm. And then another one called Things That Go Bump in the Night, which is uh, 100% verified, uh, definitely true, ghost stories. <laughs>
0: That sounds incredible. Um, Congratulations on all the work you've done and to to the whole team um, in really soldiering on in in what is a very uh, tough time. Mike, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you for having me. Much appreciated.
0: That was Mike Kennedy there, one of the co directors of the National Young Writers Festival. Uh, It is happening this year online from the 30th of September until the 3rd of October. If you do want to find out more information, you can visit youngwritersfestival.org. You're listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the R website or your favourite podcast platform. This next story comes from All the Best, a show where emerging Australian storytellers learn how to make audio stories. It's a weekly podcast and community radio show produced in collaboration with FBI Radio in Sydney, Sin Melbourne, and Sin Media in Melbourne, Triple R as well. This next story comes from their latest episode called Don't Forget. You know, that feeling of forcing your brain to do something it just doesn't want to do, whether it's trying to remember. Remember study notes for exams or the protagonist's name from that book you read two years ago? Getting your brain to work uh, can be quite tricky. In order to pass a Japanese language test, Daniel Simo tried to hack his brain using various memorization techniques from the ancient to the modern. And in the process, he also learned about his place in Japan and what it takes to really know another language.
3: I've lived in Japan for more than two years now. And other than, you know, a global pandemic, it's been great. I've done a lot of things. I've climbed Mount Fuji. I've watched a sumo match. I've taken the bullet train. I've walked across the busiest intersection in the world, in Shibuya. I've done taiko drumming. But the one thing I haven't been able to do is really learn the language. Which is why, on a crisp winter morning, about seven months ago, I was standing outside a university building in Kawasaki, south of Tokyo, ready to sit the JLPT. That's the Japanese Language Proficiency Test. Okay, I'm here now. I'm at the university. Senshu University, Ikuta Campus a lot of people here. Um, Got about half an hour to go before the test. The JLPT is the official Japanese language exam, held just twice a year. I was doing level N3, which involves recognizing more than 3,000 words and 700 pictorial characters. The only problem was, I was totally unqualified to be sitting that exam. So why did I do it? See, here's the thing. If you've lived in a foreign country recently, you'd know that it's quite possible to live your life without really having to speak the language. If you're lucky enough to have a smartphone, which many of us do, there are apps for almost anything you could need. Hell, you can even just point the phone camera at a sign and it will get translated into English in real time for you.
0: When you walk with your dog, be sure to bring a tool to handle the dung.
3: It's weird, it's as if, not speaking the language is the easy way out these days but you never get to really belong by taking the easy way out so I've made the effort I've worked through textbooks at home I've tried language learning apps I've organized language exchanges and my Japanese is okay I guess but it's not where I'd want it to be and that's frustrating I wished I could speed things up in some way Or somehow find a cheat code into mastering the language. But maybe fancy technology was not the answer. Maybe I was looking in the wrong place. Maybe instead of looking at the latest gadgets and apps, I needed to go back. Like way back. Because there was a time when people were able to learn huge amounts of information. Roman emperors memorized entire speeches... And indigenous people could categorize thousands of plant and animal species without even writing them down. And they all did it through simple techniques.
2: All indigenous cultures use these methods. All contemporary memory champions use these methods because it's the way the human brain works.
3: That's Lynn Kelly, an author and researcher at La Trobe University, who has written about ancient memorization techniques, like memory palaces. A memory palace creates an imagined place in your mind where you can store lots of different types of information.
2: It's association with place and the cells in the brain when it lays down new neural networks. It's called a temporal snapshot. If you're looking at a particular thing and thinking about something else at the same time, they will be linked together. I
3: was going to give it a go. I signed up for the exam and I had nine weeks to prepare. Nine weeks. To hack my way from beginner to intermediate using the techniques of Cicero, St. Thomas Aquinas, and the Pueblo people of North America. The first thing I really needed to do was find out where I was starting from. I needed to do a full mock test, timed in exam conditions, just to check my level. And the results were not pretty. All right, so my totals were 41% for listening, 19% for vocabulary, and 23% for grammar. Okay, so the only place I can go is up. Given that the exam is all multiple choice, and you have at least a one in four chance of getting any question correct, this was bad. I was doing worse than chance. I was like a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at the wall and hitting windows. I had my work cut out for me and I needed help. I needed to have a walk through a palace. The idea of a memory palace is simple. You need to envision a place in your mind, a place you know well, your apartment or your office or your childhood home, And then you create a path through that place. In your house, you might start at the front door, walk through the hallway, past the large bookcase and into the living room, then continue building a path with 15 or 20 different spots firm in your mind. Then you start placing objects around. So let's say you want to remember a simple shopping list. A dozen eggs, a liter of milk and five apples. The best way to remember it is to place them along the path, but then make it memorable in some way.
2: The more extreme your memory, uh, violent, vulgar, whatever, the more memorable it becomes, the stories you create, which is why mythology is always hugely exaggerated, extremely beautiful, extremely violent, lots of sex, because that makes the stories memorable and encoded in them is the information.
3: You can be opening your front door and then suddenly 12 bratty children come out and call you a dickhead and throw eggs at you that hit you on the head and leave your hair all sticky and gross. That's a dozen eggs. After you walk through the door, you see a curvy milk bottle in the shape of a sexy cow winking at you from the top of the bookcase. I told you it was a bit weird, but you probably won't forget the image. Now, a shopping list is easier because you have something tangible, real objects you can place around the palace. But what if you want to remember something less concrete? Like a set of names, or let's say, a group of Japanese kanji characters. A little bit of background. Kanji are the pictorial characters used in Japanese. They originally came from Chinese writing and calligraphy. They are made of combinations of pen and brush strokes. Each kanji can represent a word, or part of a word. For example, the word Japan in Japanese is nihon, represented by two characters ni, the character of the sun, and hon, the character for origin. So nihon means the origin of the sun. The character came from China, so Japan was the land where the rising sun from the east came from. So, the origin of the sun, ni hon. The good thing about kanji is that once you learn a few basic ones, you can start stacking them on top of each other like little Legos, making more complex characters. Those little Legos, called radicals, those were going to be really useful to me. They were the things I could place around my memory palace to help me remember the kanji. If the kanji I wanted to remember had the radical for the sun, I could put a sun there. If it also had a tree, I could put the sun coming through a tree. If it also had the radical for fire, I could put the sun coming through the tree and lighting the branches on fire, causing all the squirrels to jump away for safety. My plan was to build different memory palaces all around me. My apartment was an option. And it was actually part of a building called a Leo Palace. I assumed it was named ironically, since the best way I can describe its decor is divorced dad trying to get his life together. But I thought I'd start in a place I knew well. A place I visited every single day. My local 7 For anyone who hasn't been to a Japanese 7-Eleven, you are missing out you can get anything from a sandwich to a pair of underwear. You can pay your taxes, you can send a parcel out, you can buy a seasonal craft beer. And they're open 24 hours a day on just about every corner. They're awesome. I built a memory palace along the different aisles, shelves and fridges, all based on the characters built on one radical. The radical for man or person. It's two strokes shaped like the letter T, squashed to one side. And to make it all memorable, why not make it T for this guy? I know words. I have the best words. I have the But there's no better word than stupid. Right? There is none. There is none. In my memory palace, I had Donald Trump eating glue, throwing tantrums, taking dumps on the aisle, and getting a needle in his eye. Which was fun. And definitely memorable, but I gotta be honest, it's way too much effort just for 20 characters. It took me about 2 or 3 hours just to create the Trump Palace. There's just so much information that goes into every step of the palace that it wouldn't help me for an exam that was only a few weeks away. Remember, I had probably 300 kanji to memorize, so that would mean about 15 different memory palaces like this one so I needed something different. Then I remembered something Lynn Kelly mentioned.
2: Art and music are most uh, hugely used as memory devices. Always story, always song, usually dance and movement too.
3: Music, huh? What if I made the kanji musical? What if I turned the process of writing the character, the strokes of the character, and used the sound to create music? What if I grabbed the sound of the character for BOOK and added to it? What if I, say, turned it into a beat, added a kick, a snare, some hi-hats, and a little synth? And now, this could be my musical cue for BOOK. But no, that wasn't going to work either Again, that involves creating 300 different beats Which would be fun, but not the best use of my time Was there nothing that could help? No tool of the ancients? Was I doomed to failure? Or well, what if failure was the way forward? What if I could use failure to my advantage? Like Ebbinghaus did
4: uh, Ebbinghaus was sort of a classic figure in early psychology. He's uh, from the, the German school of psychology, I guess, back in the late 1800s. And uh, he's...
3: that's Glenn Bodner, by the way. He's an associate professor in psychology at Flinders University, and he's talking about the psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus.
4: And uh, he's sort of famous for his research on on forgetting. That's what that's who I think of when I think of Ebbinghaus. I think of his classic forgetting curve and and that research that he did. And he's also very famous for having been his own participant in his research.
3: His research is as clever as it is, well, odd. Picture this. It's Berlin in the 1880s. Here's this young researcher sitting by himself in a lab near the River Spree, and he would create these sets of short nonsense words, 13 of them. Things like Tev and Jum.
4: He would sit down this tea or whatever, and, and I guess he would just sit there and repeat in a very sort of quiet voice to himself that first list of 13, and then he would uh, go through the whole list, and then he would uh, repeat this again, and eventually he'd get to a point where he thinks he's got it. He thinks he's mastered this set of 13 nonsense uh, words, and so at that point he would reproduce them.
3: And he did this with multiple sets of nonsense words, many times a day day after day, for months on end. But the thing is, his goal wasn't to remember the words, but to forget them. He wanted to find out exactly how quickly we forget them. Imagine that, dedicating your life's work to recording failure. Your own failure. So what did Ebbinghaus find? That human beings are spectacularly good at forgetting. If you plot Ebbinghaus' results onto a graph, you get his famous forgetting curve, which shows memory basically falling off a cliff.
4: And essentially the shape of that curve is that you get this rapid decline in memory, or you could think of it as quick forgetting of much of the list.
3: In the process of trying to find out how we forget, though, Ebbinghaus was also discovering how we can remember. Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve shows us that when we first encounter a syllable, a word, A kanji character. We have full awareness and we remember it clearly. But as time passes, that awareness fades and we forget it. But if we then bring it to our attention again, it will become clear and we recall it. Only for it to start fading again. But, and this is important, no longer all the way down. We will probably forget it, but not definitely. If we then review it again, by the time it starts fading down, there's a much better chance we will actually remember it. This is the thinking behind space repetition apps. They're a simple study tool you can use, like flashcard software, where you can review characters or vocabulary words or grammar points. The most famous one is Anki. And if you notice one thing throughout my nine weeks of practice, it's my use of Anki. Have we done with... With Anki, and I'm probably not going to finish the Anki tonight. My Anki. 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 It's one forty three in the morning. And I just finished Anki. After all my experiments with ancient techniques and unusual practices, I'd come back around to using an app to help me with the brain hacking. Anki, by the way, is the Japanese word for memorize. Its kanji consists of two characters. The first one means darkness. And the second one means a record or a chronicle. Keeping a chronicle of the darkness. I can imagine Ebbinghaus feeling like that about his own work. In a way, that's what the process of memorization feels like. But it's all about stepping out of that darkness and into the light. Right, so it is Monday. It's been about a month and a half since the JLPT, and the results are out. So let's check them out. Latest test information, application, test result and certificate issuance. Okay, let's have a look. Result. Total score, 91 out of 180. Result, failed. Right. I have to admit, I I wanted that to be a pass. I really did. In the end, I got close. My final score was 52%, and I needed to get 54% to pass. I went from a blind monkey with a dart in my hand to an average human who just needs more time to practice. Even if I had passed... It would have been a bit of a hollow victory anyway. Yes, my Japanese was better, but I still didn't feel like I knew it. Because the truth is, learning a language is not really like memorizing a shopping list. It's a fluid process and it involves many parts of your mind and every sense of your being. I often like to walk around my local neighborhood in the town of Sagamihara at night when no one's around. A hundred years ago, this would have been either a rice field or a small village. You walk around now and it feels as urban as any part of Tokyo. And yet, at night, it can be as quiet as a rural town a hundred years ago, before modernity struck. I like to look at the signs by the side of the road or in front of the shops. When I was studying in earnest, when I was doing two or three hours of Anki a day I sometimes managed to recognize all the kanji on them but I didn't really know them I knew their meaning and what they represented but they weren't part of my vocabulary to really know words you have to use them you have to read them and write them and speak them and hear them in conversation because that's how you learn By going out to bars and cafes, by joining clubs, by meeting people, talking to them, and asking questions, and making mistakes. By being part of your community. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the ancient truth that I was looking for all along.
0: That was Chronicle of Darkness produced and sound designed by Daniel Simo with supervising production from Mal Chuan. You can check out All The Best wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you do want to get involved with All The Best, they are currently accepting spring pitches. You can head over to allthebestradio.com to find out more. It's almost time for me to get on out of here. Big thank you to Mike Kennedy. Co director of National Young Writers Festival for his time this afternoon. If you do want more information, you can visit their website at youngwritersfestival.org. I'll be back with you next Wednesday. Till then, keep a to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.